standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Hopefully you've already heard a cheeky slither of my chat with Gabrielle Jackson, author of the must-read Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies, in this week's podcast. But wait, there's more. Like, loads more about this. Gabrielle's personal dealings with endometriosis led her to explore how women, historically and through to today, are underserved, sometimes fatally, by the systems that are supposed to keep us healthy. You have no doubt heard us wanging on about this before. There is very little research into women's bodies and therefore medicine quite often gets it wrong or, you know, just shrugs its shoulders and calls us hysterical. I'm sure you'll agree, that's not on. Gabrielle's book explains how we got here, what it means and where we go next. The power of collective anger, people. We can change things. On which note, I am recording this on Thursday, in case you're wondering why I'm not sobbing or hope against all hope mid-celebration. Fingers crossed. See you on the other side. I am in a very noisy Weatherspoons with people having a lovely time at four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon with journalist and author Gabrielle Jackson. Hi, thanks for inviting me to Weatherspoons at four o'clock on a Tuesday. Are you having the classiest time you've ever had? This is awesome, I love it. (laughs) So we are here to talk about your excellent book, Pain and Prejudice, which is timely and important and the tagline is a call to arms for women and their bodies. Couldn't be more upstanding issues, Ali, if I'm honest with you. So tell us about it. Oh my God, I don't know where to start. It was kind of years in the making, really. I had kind of, you know, been that girl at school that missed school every month because of her periods Mm -hmm. and was told by my female GP to put up with it. That's life. Some women have bad period pains. Was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome when I was 16. And then eventually when I was 23, I said to the GP, look, this isn't right. This is just not normal. I don't see people around me suffering like me. Refer me to a gynecologist. So she did, and I was really lucky that he was an expert in endometriosis. And I had surgery and thought that I was kind of cured in a way and spent the next kind of 15 years thinking that endometriosis was just really bad period pain not associating these incredible bouts of fatigue I have with endo, the back and hip and leg pain I had, the irritable bowel, the kind of dizziness, the nausea, all these things that made me think I was like a hypochondriac. Yep. And then it was only in 2015 I went to this conference on endometriosis where I found out that all these things wrong with me are all very, very common symptoms of endometriosis. And not only did women themselves not know that, but a lot of doctors didn't know that either. It was really just a light bulb moment for me and I, I wrote about it for The Guardian, but, but even writing about it for The Guardian raised more questions than it answered because hundreds of women wrote in telling these stories about you know being told they're hypochondriacs, being sometimes told actually they're hysterical or that they're type A personalities. I just had all these questions that I couldn't answer in one article, so that's why I decided to write a book about it. I was going to say, the response to that Guardian article was off the scale. Were you utterly surprised by it? Yeah, I was, because I'd had this disease for 15 years and never had heard anyone talk about it. Even some of our health writers had never heard of endometriosis, and that was only in 2015. So awareness has really exploded in the four years since then. But I think the really important thing about this book is that it's not just about endometriosis. It's about how endometriosis is so typical of any, well, first of all, of chronic pain conditions and any other illnesses that mainly affect women for some reason. 
Okay, so just in case anyone is still wondering, is healthcare sexist? Mm. <laughs> there is no doubt. Healthcare is sexist. <laughs> it's not controversial. Not a controversial opinion. Um, I should say, though, it's not because doctors are sexist, although obviously some are, right, because yep. they're human beings. Mm-hmm. But the system itself is structurally sexist. And that to change that, we can't just say, oh, more women need to become doctors. That's not going to fix it because the, the way they're trained is masculinized. The way research has been conducted is masculinized. We just actually don't really know that much about female biology. Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating uh, when you cover it in Pain and Prejudice is that the medical profession has almost taken over from religion in keeping women in their place. Yeah, in controlling women. Yeah. And so much still what we hear today is that when women get illnesses, they're told it's because they delayed childbirth or it's because of something that happened to them, like it's a result of trauma, sexual assault or something. There's still this blame. You know, the first instinct Mm. is still to blame women. It's something they did. It's their uncontrollable bodies or minds. Let's talk about the ongoing hysteria diagnosis because we haven't actually moved that far forward from the old... Oh, London. (laughs) Bit of London in the background there. (laughs) Because we are near the hospital too. (laughs) (laughs) What a great place I've chosen for an interview. So we've not actually moved that far forward from the old wandering womb. No. Like ideas of why women get ill. Yeah, we haven't. And I mean, from the very beginning of, you know, the study of medicine, doctors realised women were different. One of the the major difference was they could have babies. So all the kind of ailments they got that men didn't seem to get was blamed on the uterus or if they didn't have babies it must be because of that if they hadn't had them yet then if they had them that would solve the problem and it all became so much about babies and sexuality like masturbation was considered to be the cause of so many illnesses it was the three bears wasn't it it was goldilocks it was like you you had to get it just right you have too much sex (laughs) not enough sex just the right amount of sex and you probably wouldn't be hysterical exactly but no one knew what that was yeah No, exactly. You know, this is how women's health and women's sexuality became so linked. And I don't think we've seen that uncouple yet. I think still today, you know, 75% of people diagnosed with borderline are women. And 80% of those have had some kind of trauma. Lots of times it's sexual trauma in their childhood. And so what we're doing is we're blaming women for the things that happen to them. And by diagnosing them with a medical illness, no doubt lots of people with borderline really suffer terribly, but we're kind of blaming them for the things that happen to them. And we're trying to fix this right at the very last end instead of looking at the society that has created these issues. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think when medicine needs to go right back and and look at all the ways it diagnoses female illness and, and how they treat them. And dealing with complex trauma at the very early stages could perhaps prevent borderline and other post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, all these other illnesses that women seem to get diagnosed with more frequently. So there are two really interesting things to bounce off from that. So one of the things there is mental health diagnoses are very much a woman's domain. We like if you if you feel like you've got pain and like pain might be making you sad, immediately they'll put you on antidepressants. So women going through the menopause, which is still really, really misunderstood, a lot of them get diagnosed as depressed mm. and given antidepressants, which of course don't touch the signs but it's fuck all to do with serotonin. Mm. And the other thing that happens is the bikini diagnosis that you talk about as well and that is where all of women's ailments are very much 
uterus and tits. Yeah. That's it. That's the only thing they've ever studied in women. Is it? Yeah. Say that call- again for, for the back. <laughs> the only thing they've really studied in women are like breasts and the uterus. And, you know... <laughs> it's just, oh, it's so fury-making. Yeah, it is, because they're like, well, they're the only things that are different, so we'll just study biology in men. But this is the reason why more women die of heart disease, you know, because we've well, only studied it in men. The medicines we have uh, to treat men, but it, it's, it's very different. The symptoms, the pathology is very different in women. Women mm-hmm. have different kinds of heart, heart attacks, different types of heart disease. And even though that's like been fairly well established in the science for over a decade, a study last year in Australia in tertiary hospitals found, you know, these are our best hospitals yeah. in Australia, found that 50% of women will be treated as well as a man when they present with a heart attack and more than double will die six months later. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, that's it. It's, it's putting it in plain terms that this sexism within medicine is fatal. Yeah, it is. It's exactly right. It's fatal. And the thing with, you know, autoimmune conditions and pain conditions is that often, you know, a lot of people will say... Oh, well, you know, it doesn't kill women. But actually, it really reduces quality of life. And now there are studies that show an increased suicide rate among people with chronic pain illnesses. So it's not right to say this doesn't kill you because it really, really reduces opportunities and it, and it deprives you of your full humanity. Some women just can't work when they're in so much pain. They can't live life to their fullest, and, and that's not fair. And this is a self-esteem issue that always goes hand-in-hand hand with this kind of thing, that if you're told repeatedly, which is what happens to a lot of women, that, you know, well, we've not been able to fix you, so clearly this is just all in your mind, mm. then you start believing you're a hypochondriac. You, Where's your self-belief then? Absolutely, you do. And, and this is, like, such a pernicious cycle because, you know, doctors often talk about how women love to go to the doctor. Right? This is this, there's this real myth. It's because doctors are all sexy men in well, white coats. <laughs> yeah. But this ignores the fact that we kind of have to go. We have to go for every kind of reproductive service we want. If we want to prevent pregnancy, we have to see a doctor. If we want to terminate a pregnancy, we have to see a doctor. If we want to pursue a pregnancy, we have to see a doctor. Women are still more likely to take their kids to the doctor. You know, often there's menstrual troubles where you have to see... There's all these instances where women are forced to see a doctor that men aren't forced to see a doctor. And therefore, they have many more interactions with doctors, not because they want to or they like it, but because the law forces us to have those interactions with doctors. Yeah. And then they say, oh, women go to the doctor much more. When we know women will delay going to the hospital for a heart attack longer than men. And one of the reasons is because they fear being called a hypochondriac if nothing is actually wrong. So this is, as I said, really pernicious. But the other thing is they say a lot of doctors, this is all in the literature on endometriosis, is they, oh, they love getting that diagnosis as though, <laughs> as though you know, they love being sick. And it's like, because they've been told probably for like eight to ten years that it's all in their head, that it's making it up. And that joy of the diagnosis comes from a feeling of like, oh, my God, I'm not fucking crazy. This is real. And that that is where the joy comes from. Not, yeah. oh, yay, I'm sick. It's, oh, yay, I'm not crazy. Yeah, and also not on your own. Yeah. Because if there's something that you can then go and look up and get information for yourself I think women are actually really good at doing that exactly yeah and what I love about pain and prejudice is you've tagged it a call to arms Mm. because it feels like we have to go in there with knowledge yeah we really do and those of us who have that 
kind of power, it's especially important because there's a lot of women, especially women of colour, who no matter how hard they advocate for themselves are not going to be taken seriously and they might not have the resources to go from doctor to doctor to doctor, especially in rural areas where there might only be, you know, one or two GPs that can possibly see. So I think, yeah, those of us who have a voice have to really use it to advocate for better service for us. But the other thing I will say is... Often you never put together all the symptoms yourself because you don't think they're related. Like, why would I tell my gynecologist about my dizziness and my headaches? Yeah, yeah. When in actual fact, these are all very related and telling your doctor all of the things wrong with you, so knowing your symptoms, knowing your body, knowing what's normal for you is really important when you do get to the doctor and you can tell them everything that's happening. Can we just go back and touch on the fact that obviously sexism within the medical profession and, and that whole bit of culture can be fatal but sexism and racism is an absolutely deadly combination it is particularly when it's to do with pregnancy and around huge rates of higher maternal mortality in women of colour yeah it's it's and it doesn't even matter about class you know income is not a factor you know rich black women die at higher rates and their children than white women the same educated or even with less education Mm -hmm. and less income so yeah as you say that that intersection of race and sex is really deadly it's the same as with the systemic sexism where women aren't trusting themselves anymore because we've been told or see in popular culture that women are hypochondriacs and you know just being hysterical whether you're angry or you're upset or you're in pain it's hysterical Mm. and then you've got the systemic racism that tells black women that they are lesser and that is all combining it is and often doctors and nurses will treat black women in pain as though they're drug seekers the immediate thing they think of when they see a black woman coming to the emergency department asking you know saying she's in pain is oh they're just after drugs and I actually covered an inquest for a for an Aboriginal woman in Australia who had that treatment and ended up dying of a completely preventable sepsis infection. She came to the hospital midnight, six months pregnant, in terrible pain, sucking a you know hydrolyte ice block, which is what you take for nausea. They yeah. gave her two Panadol and sent her home in less than half an hour. And she died 15 hours later. Now, you know, that's how deadly it is. I mean, she she had done everything she could, this woman. She'd gone, her mother had written to the hospital. She'd had this pain, ongoing pain, which no one was taking serious for six months. And there was nothing. She everything. She tried everything. She tried to go to different doctors. She tried to stand up for herself. And it wasn't enough. So you've written this call to arms. What can women do about their health and taking care of it? Mm. Look, this is really hard because I hate always putting the onus back on women to change things, right? But actually, in medicine, it has been women who change things. Well, People we've got with all breast this cancer. Time off sick, <laughs> so you know, better make the use of it. Exactly. But this was the same with breast cancer 50 years ago. Women were told it was a career women's disease. It was because you delayed childbirth. And it was only from women kind of advocating for more research, for raising money themselves and for putting pressure on policymakers, that we got more research. It's even in Sex in the City, isn't it? Samantha is told it's because she's not had a kid. Yes. And I know with my friends with Endo and I, and I know with you, when you had your endometriosis, one of the recommendations is get pregnant yes. and sort it out. And it's total bullshit. 
I mean, I can't tell you how many women have told me, oh, yeah, so I had kids really young, and it actually got worse for them. Look, some women do fare better after childbirth, but a lot don't, and a lot actually suffer worse after they've had their children. And then they've got children and to look after. And children, yeah. And pain. I had this friend, and she was telling me, I hadn't seen her for years, and was telling her about my book and she said, oh yeah, well, you know, I used to suffer so badly and then I had you know, two laparoscopies and then I had my two kids and I, and I was much better now. And then we got to talking about kind of pain and back pain and everything and I was like, well, so how often do you have all that pain? And she was like, oh, every day. And I'm like, so you're in pain every day? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, so you haven't recovered actually from endometriosis. But she just didn't ever connect these pains. She didn't know that she was still suffering from endometriosis she's been told she was fine now. Yeah, and what you are is distracted because yeah. you've got two other yes. little humans to look after. Because like, she's oh. a single mother with two children and she's complete, and she works and she's run off her feet. And, you know, you're told that's fixed now. That You're told that's fixed, that's fixed. And so you actually normalise your own pain. You don't realise you're taking, you know, ibuprofen every day or every second day or for two weeks of the month. You just think, oh, that's part of being a woman and being busy and stressed. Mm. And actually, no, it's this disease that actually can be treated. So even though we don't want to put the onus on women to be no. responsible for this or have to be <laughs> responsible, we're going to, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, the thing is that I think the lack of knowledge about our bodies, our lack of education about how, our anatomy and how it all works is deliberate. This is a deliberate design to keep women suppressed yeah, or repressed or both. And so learning, that's, that's why I did the first two chapters, you know, about the anatomy and what menstruation is and what menopause is, to kind of arm us with facts. Because we're not taught it at school. We certainly aren't. It's still that focus on male pleasure and, like, the reproductive system is all about getting pregnant it's not about female pleasure at all. Oh no, we don't even know that you know the labia grows during puberty. They're not even taught. They don't even know the name of the labia. You know. Can I just say I got all the answers right on your diagram <laughs> test? Oh, well done. Thanks. Well done. <laughs> Gave myself a little pat on the back. Um, well, I was so surprised at how little I knew when I set out to write this book. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, making sure the, the girls around us, even if we don't have kids ourselves, if we have sons, making sure they know, yep. it's just perhaps more important, and making sure girls know and just being very open about our anatomy and what it feels like. You know, I was just, you know, I'm staying with friends who have got kids and the five-year-old said to them, oh, I've got an itchy fanny. <laughs> they were like, oh, good. Thank you for telling us. And they're all, you know, about, yes, it's very... Be honest about it. There was nothing, like, abnormal or yucky about it. No, nothing shameful. It was like, thanks for telling us. Maybe we have to have a bath. (laughs) But it was just great to see how things are, like, changing like that for little girls. Probably not in every family, but at least in some. All right, it's Jenna. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. 
So you must have had your eyes open to loads of stuff when you were researching the book. Yeah. What was the most surprising discovery oh, God, for you? There, there were so many. I think the, the biggest surprise was when I realised just how little science knew about women. Yeah. That blew my mind. I was like, this can't be right. It really can't be right. But, you know, they've known about endometriosis for 100 years. They still don't know anything about how it works because... They haven't really studied it. Like, it's still, you know, there's this there's this absolute obsession with the endometriosis lesions because doctors can see that, right? There's a right, physical okay. aspect to it. They can operate on you, which they love doing. You know, that's what gynecologists are paid to do, surgery. Right, yeah. You can open up, they can see the lesions, they can cut them out, and you're supposed to be better. But now we know the, the physical disease and the symptoms and don't correlate. You can have loads of, of you know, lesions inside your pelvis and not have many symptoms. On the other hand, you could have hardly any lesions and have really severe symptoms. And it's not just about period pain. As, as I said, there was this great study in Australia by this um, gynaecologist who's now a researcher who's been collecting surveys of women's symptoms, them telling her what their symptoms are for okay. 20 years, and this has changed her whole understanding of endometriosis. And this study she did with 19 years of, of women's symptoms showed that Anyone with severe period pain has, on average, eight and a half other symptoms out of a pool of 15. It's 15 symptoms and anyone with period pain, whether or not they have endometriosis or adenomyosis or any other condition of the reproductive system, has eight and a half other symptoms. And that's irritable bowel syndrome, painful bladder syndrome, dizziness, headaches, poor sleep, nausea, painful sex, vulvodynia, all these things that are really common, a temporomandibular joint, like jaw pain. Anyway, it's just amazing, and it's not the endometriosis. So our, our obsession with endo now could be actually stopping a wider knowledge of what's going on in the, in the uh, women's bodies with their pain. Do you think things are changing? Is there any hope? <laughs> um, yeah, I think there is. There was a like, massive pause there. Massive. Um, because... Because I think that patient-led knowledge is happening for the first time, and that is so amazing. And as I said, that uh, that doctor now knows more about endometriosis than I think anyone in the world. Not from, you know, dissecting bodies, but from just listening to women and them telling her about their disease and what they feel. That is amazing. And there are some really great... There's a, there's a woman in Oxford, gynaecologist called Katie Vincent, and she's doing amazing research on pain, women in pain, in the UK. And then there's another woman in the US who's also doing amazing things. And those three women just really inspired me and made me very hopeful for the future. It's a sort of power of collective anger, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, podcasts like this... And, you know, other books like mine, they're all starting to to come out now because there's a realisation. Women are realising, I'm not alone. I'm not abnormal. I'm actually quite normal. And, you know, there is this kind of collective anger, as you say, and also uh, motivation to do something about it, which is really powerful. There's a brilliant woman we've tried to a few times on the podcast called Elaine Miller. She's a pelvic physio. Kind oh, of, pelvic yeah. physio is fantastic. She's incredible. Yeah. And she goes by the name of Gussie Griffin. 
experts, but she has a great phrase, and that is, you have symptoms that are common, but not normal, mm. and what happens is, because they're so common, they get dismissed as being normal, and yes. they're not, there's such a crucial difference, and I guess it's learning that about our own bodies. Exactly, it's so important, because a lot of the time, these symptoms are hereditary, so if your mum had terrible, debilitating period pain, she might tell you, not out of malice, that's normal, because that's her experience yeah. of normal. And your sister, you might see your sister suffering too. So it's really important to have these conversations and to make talking about periods really open so that we do know what's the difference between, as you say, what's normal and what's common, which are not the same things. Can I just tell you the second amazing thing? Please. Um, well, it's about the reproductive process. Basically, you know, we've been sold this idea that the active go-getting sperm travels up and swims like crazy and then pierces the egg, and that's how fertilisation happens. Well, that's absolute 100% bullshit. So the sperm does, you know, travel up to the fallopian tubes, but they cannot pierce an egg without the egg's active involvement. Often the sperm gets to the fallopian tube and just flops around. Actually, the egg has to activate an outer layer and that is how the sperm and the egg merge. Yeah. I'm trying not to use language which makes the sperm active and the egg passive. Well, I don't believe you because women are passive. <laughs> you must be making this up. And that's what happens. Mm. When they make that kind of active and passive female and male the, the, the basis of cells, it makes it seem so natural as to be, on, be beyond change. And that's not actually the case at all. I guess it's making the medical political. Yeah, it is. It has to be. Where do we go from here? I think that the, the, the fact that we're talking, that this podcast is happening, is amazing. And we have to lobby. I mean, we have to actually make policymakers put money into this because there's just not money going into it now. And the pharmaceutical companies, are, you know, there's no really new novel treatments happening because they don't actually understand the basic mechanism of chronic pain very well. And they're still not testing drugs on women yeah. because our menstrual cycles means that, oh, it's a bit trickier and a bit more expensive. So all of these drugs that are available, I think in your book it says that 80% of painkillers have only ever been tested on men. Yeah, or male mice. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's changing now. So in 2016, the US government made it so any pain research money that they were granting had to study female humans or mice. And if they could only study one, it had to be female because that's the that 70% of people with chronic pain are women. And so a female rodent is the best model of, you know, human pain. But still, a lot of results aren't being analysed for sex and gender. And I think it's really important to analyse for both sex yeah. and gender because they are not the same thing. And research has shown that people transitioning from male to female, men to woman, have more pain. And the opposite, when they transition from woman to man, they um, get less pain. So these gender differences are really interesting. We don't know enough yet, but we need to know more. And I think really, really importantly, all research should be analysing results for sex and gender differences. Yeah, just need that conversation around that to be less toxic. And hopefully then that can happen. Well, exactly. How yeah. do we, we can't have a conversation if we don't have any knowledge. Exactly, exactly that. Where can people find out more about you and where can people get hold of, and you really should get hold of, a copy of Pain and Prejudice? So Pain and Prejudice is available on Amazon and Waterstones websites. It's also an audio book on Audible. Did you read it? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, you know, I'm an editor at The Guardian and I sometimes write things for The Guardian too. And there's a great website in Australia called the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia. And they have lots of really great information about the drugs that can help and the different things happening and lots of resources. And you're on the Twitter, aren't you? Oh, I definitely am on Twitter at Gabrielle CJ. Yes. That's my favourite social media channel. Oh, okay. (laughs) Good luck out there. Thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been fascinating. Oh, thank you for having me. Standard Issue for All Women.